the reality of most people's lives is that we come in contact with a lot of different people and cross paths with a lot of different people in our day-to-day -day lives. And I understand, of course, the perspective of telling the story through one person. And I can also see the reality that sometimes that's even how we see ourselves in our day-to-day -day life. That, yeah, here's some supporting characters in our life, but like, this is my life. Actress Sarah Jones says it's more rewarding to work with ensemble casts. And she should know. She's graced the screen in The Path, Damnation, Texas Rising, Chemical Hearts, Sons of Anarchy, Alcatraz, and so much more. And she recently completed an amazing season of For All Mankind on Apple TV+. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I get to talk with Sarah about her work on For All Mankind. Early spoiler alert, I'm going to want to talk about the epic season finale, so maybe go watch it first and then come back and listen to this episode to hear all about it. From Kurt Co. Media. There's no place like Hollywood. <laughs> Usually I start at the very beginning, but last night I rewatched the finale of For All Mankind, so I actually want to start there because I cried the whole way through it, and I've watched it three times now. It's so good. Wow. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Big fan. I really liked the show. I loved what you did, and I would just love to hear how you're feeling now that it's out. I think there's somewhat of a relief that it's out there because... This is something I've known about for over a year now. Mm. So just to sort of move past it is somewhat of a relief. And it's obviously very gratifying to know that people were moved by the episode and that Michael and my storyline or Gordo and Tracy's storyline had an impact on the people that really enjoy the show. And of course, it's bittersweet as well, because our cast is pretty tight knit and the crew is just so wonderful. It's a really positive atmosphere on the set. So of course, I'll miss that. Yeah, I guess that sums it up. What was the trajectory like from you for starting this show to where you ended up? And like you said, the cast is so tight knit. It looks like all of your chemistry is amazing. What was the journey like? Initially, actually, I passed on playing Tracy. I was only given the first two scripts. And if anyone's familiar with the first season, Tracy is essentially an astronaut wife in the first two episodes. And I really wasn't interested in playing, quote, the wife. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't appealing as tempting as it was to be a part of a new platform like Apple TV Plus. The first two episodes for Trace wasn't really connecting. But then after having a meeting with Ron and Ben and Matt and Meryl, Ron kind of broke it down to, yeah, Tracy's not just going to be a housewife. What he saw for Tracy, my idea about her shifted tremendously. And having the opportunity to work with someone like Ron it was really easy to connect with him. And he's just such a sort of even keeled, easygoing human being, so knowledgeable in what he does. It was a no brainer. And so we had a big table reading with all the executives and casting directors and the whole shebang. It started with Joel, Michael, Chantel, Ren, and myself. I think those were the only series regulars at the time. Mm. We all just sort of hit it off immediately. You know, I remember Chantel and I being 
pretty nervous with all the eyes on the first day. We all just sort of, it was just from the get-go all in for this show and being on a new platform and the uncertainty of it all. That was an exciting concept for all of us that we shared to be able to sort of start from scratch in a lot of ways. Mm. The second season, I had hoped that Tracy was more in a, not necessarily an administrative position, but that she was sort of running things somewhat at NASA. So when they told me that she had become this massive celebrity and what all of that was going to look like and having to go to the moon and essentially be a truck driver from the insane piloting maneuver she pulled off in the first season, I was into it and I was intrigued. And then I sort of had to adjust. I think part of it too was with Tracy's trajectory in the first season. She kind of went from putting herself on the back burner in a lot of ways to by the end of the season, really owning her ambition and what was best for her. And so I sort of hoped that that trajectory would have continued into the second season with a more ambitious career aspect. But what I did appreciate about where the writers took Tracy in the second season is that there was another aspect to Tracy in the first season, which was she was constantly seeking approval. And it was never really enough. She was just constantly trying to prove herself to her husband, to Molly, to Deke, to Ed, to Karen, to everyone that essentially said, you shouldn't be here. And her knowing that and having to fight that. And no matter what she did, it was clearly never enough. Otherwise, in my mind, she wouldn't be where we found her in the second season. If she had embraced her abilities and her strengths and what she knows how to do, and if that had been enough in the first season, I think her career trajectory would have looked very, very different in the second season. But for me, it clearly wasn't enough. All of that acknowledgement, getting her astronaut pin, becoming this sort of international hero, none of that was enough. That's how I kind of wanted to bridge the 10-year gap of, okay, well then how does she go from the last episode of the first season to where we find her? And she hasn't dealt with her demons. She let her ego take over and, and it can get you in trouble. And she sort of hid behind vices. I'm glad that by the end of the season, she got back to the core of who she is, which is that ultimately she wants to do what's right. I want to go back to you turning down the role. <laughs> how did they react and how did you end up in that meeting then? Did they call you and beg you to come talk? I don't know how they reacted because I wasn't on that phone call. It was for no other reason than, yeah, I just, I don't want to play the wife. I'm looking for something, something else. They came back a couple of times <laughs> and then finally yeah. my reps got on the phone with me. They said, look, Ron and the producers would really just like to have a chat with you. Would you be willing to meet them for lunch and, and just talk to them about this role? And I went, okay, all right. After I said, okay, I don't know why, but I just sort of knew like, shoot, you can't say no to Ron. Are you glad you said yes though? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. It's been such a unique experience and there are so many people that I'm confident I've built really lasting friendships with, which doesn't always happen. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if you aren't lifelong friends with 
a group of people that you've worked with that there wasn't a bond at the time. Sometimes it's the connection's only meant to last for a day. Sometimes it's only meant to last for a year. Sometimes a lifetime. You never know. But I think there's quite a few relationships within the cast and crew that I'll be hanging on to for a while, which I just really appreciate. I also love that you said in second season, it was an adjustment for you to see her storyline. But that's literally what she has to go through is this giant adjustment and how that affects her. Yeah. Do you draw parallels from your life to your characters? Does that kind of fuse in? The best way I can describe my relationships, if you will, without that sounding incredibly pretentious, with the characters that I play is, you know how when you first start dating someone and you're actually into them, you're excited about them and... You like them. You're into it, yeah. (laughs) And and you find yourself thinking about them and not realizing you're even thinking about them and just happen to be on your mind. I'm like, oh my God, why am I thinking about this right now? I'm supposed to be doing this. And you kind of blush and, you know, whatever. It's sort of the same thing where I just can't stop thinking about the person that I'm supposed to be playing. And so... Then I'll find myself listening to music that I think they might have listened to, but like, that's the music I'll be into. It's what I can't stop listening to. Or I'll start sort of dressing in the way that I feel like they would gravitate towards, but that's the fashion I'm into at the moment. Do my hair a certain way or makeup a certain way when I put on makeup. Just little things like that. And I, without even realizing sometimes that I'm doing it, I just find myself caught up thinking about the person in their life. And I don't know. And it just sort of never leaves. Even after we wrapped the second season. And that's why I was sort of saying it's kind of a relief that it's all out there now. Because I can really just sort of put Tracy to rest. But even after we wrapped, there were still things I was thinking about her. Well, what if she had lived? What would that have been like? What would I have hoped that she was doing? Where would her sons be? What are what are they up to? I remember thinking this, like, <laughs> which is so silly because it's a show. It's not real life. But I thought to myself, God, I hope her sons understand that this wasn't just Gordo and Tracy deciding to be the heroes on the moon. And she somewhat says it in the line, like, this is bigger than you and me. Russian, American, everybody's going to die on the moon. For Tracy, it's one step further than that. She has a son that's at a military academy. She knows what that means. She has her best friend whose daughter wants to be in the military academy and is heading there. Tracy knows what that means. And she knows that there will be severe consequences if this blows up and it started from an American. That could very well lead to World War III. And so there was a part of me that thought to myself, God, I hope her sons know that like they knew they had to do it, but I hope they knew that she actually did it for them. And now I'm getting emotional. I think that's what I always wanted to bring it back to for Tracy was that first and foremost, she was a mother. And I don't know why I'm so emotional about that. No, that's that's <laughs> so wonderful though. God. And that's also Part of what I wanted to ask and to continue that metaphor of liking someone, does it feel kind of like a breakup now? Like you had to let go of someone that you love. Are you mourning the loss of Tracy at all? I think I did initially, obviously. Like I said, you're with that person and you're constantly sort of thinking about that person when you're not, when you're not on set even. 
that was something else that I always hoped would come through or wanted to talk about because Tracy was the only female character that was a working mother in a time where that was not happening. It was very interesting because she was dealing with the same stuff that women in 2021 deal with now. The difference is, is that we can have credit cards without our husbands or fathers signing for them. I know the toll that it can take on a woman to have ambitions of her own while also being a mother. No one asks working men that are fathers, how do you do it all? No one. Well, how do they do it? Oh, well, because the woman takes care of most of it and you go to work. I really hoped that some of that came through. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So you started in dance, right? I did, yes. Did you start in an artistic family, and how did that lead you to acting? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Well, I don't know how interesting it is, but (laughs) all of us know how to play some sort of musical instrument. I grew up playing piano as well. My mom's a music major. But my mom took me to see The Nutcracker when I was three, and that that was it for me. I was in ballet lessons when I was four. And that passion grew tremendously. And and by eight years old, I was in a headspace where I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. That's it. And devoted hours, you know, every day from the time I was eight, committed to dancing. And and I thought that's what I was going to do with my life. And actually, when I first came out to L.A., that's that's how I made money. I, I signed with a dance agency, did a few gigs. And, and the owner of the dance agency called me in one day and asked if I ever thought about acting. And I said, oh, I'm sure, you know, and he suggested a class and my dance agency would send me on little auditions here and there. And I happened to be at this random audition that they sent me to. There was another actor in the waiting room for something else. And we just started a conversation. And at one point he said, do you have theatrical representation? And I was like, nah. And he was like, are you looking for it? And I was like, well, I don't really know how to go about it. And he's like, you should meet my agent. Let me give you my number. And I'm just like, oh man. I was like, what did I get myself into? But I ended up calling him and he introduced me to my agent that was my agent for 10 years. And that's sort of how that all took off. I got really lucky. My family was highly appreciative of the arts, which was really helpful in terms of pursuing a career in it. My parents weren't shocked by the decision. I didn't go to college. I just moved out to LA when I was 19 and rolled the dice. Was the switch to acting like a full switch or did you kind of transition from dance to acting slowly? No, I would say it was a pretty quick turnaround, mainly because acting jobs pay much better than dancing jobs. More than one month's worth of rent (laughs) on a guest spot. When did you start loving acting? I don't know if anything will ever replace the sort of high and passion that I got from dancing, mm-hmm. but acting's pretty close. 
And I would say that it has different moments. It sort of has depended on the job, but I would say Big Love certainly was the seed that was planted where I thought, oh, this is the kind of thing I want to do. I want to be a part of an ensemble cast on a cable series. This is the future of storytelling. This is what I want to do. And Bill Paxton was such an incredible leader on that show, number one, if you will. And he really made an impact on me and in the way that he talked to people and related with everyone and and just made everyone feel really welcome. And his work ethic was so strong. And I felt very fortunate that that was such an early impression at the beginning of my career that was made. Big Love certainly had an impact where I thought, okay, this is cool. I'm interested in this. And the path had that and damnation and and for all mankind. I mean, I, I learned a lot from Alcatraz, but it was very challenging, but I learned a lot from it. You've been in a lot of, like you said, ensemble based shows. Is there something more fulfilling or different about that? Having everybody shoulder the story together? I'm most interested in the human condition of it all, the reality of a situation. And and the reality of most people's lives is that we come in contact with a lot of different people and cross paths with a lot of different people in our day-to-day lives. And I understand, of course, the perspective of telling the story through one person. And I can also see the reality that sometimes that's even how we see ourselves in our day-to-day life. That, yeah, here's some supporting characters in our life, but like, this is my life. I also like the opportunity of being able to work with more than one or two people. And I don't know, I just, I like working with people and off of people. And and I like working in groups as well too, which doesn't happen often, but it's really fun. I actually, it was funny, Ren plays Margot on the show. And we were just saying how conference room scenes when there is a ribbit of rhythm that's established and people start feeding off of each other's energy, it's just, it's a lot of fun. I like not knowing what the other person is going to do. Yeah. And seeing what happens. Yeah. The play of it. Yeah. So right now I'm directing a narrative podcast that's set in space. And then I was watching For All Mankind. And so I'm like watching you save Molly essentially is the scene that I think stuck in my brain. So I had this crazy dream of like this woman climbing out of her space capsule and parachuting down to earth. And I'm 100% sure it came from watching that scene. Like you said, you, you start dressing like your character. Does it infiltrate your brain to the extent that you end up like dreaming in character or having that subconscious life? I've only had a couple of dreams regarding Tracy and For All Mankind, but I also feel like it sort of weaves in and out of more so being on set as and playing Tracy. Like it kind of weaves into playing her and then me with other cast members off of set. But it's only happened a couple of times. I read something that you put on your spacesuit and you could feel the weight of the responsibility of that spacesuit. Yeah. How much does the being on set and the clothing and all of the external stuff, how much does that affect the character versus the internal? Oh, I mean, it all goes hand in hand. You can do all the internal work in the world, but if you look in the mirror and you're not seeing the character, it can mess with your head. And you either have to figure out how to adjust to it or you have to say, this isn't I'm not connecting this. What's going on? Help me bridge the gap here. For me, it all goes hand in hand. Also, did you actually get to keep a spacesuit? 
I got to keep a flight suit, the 80s flight suit they gave me. What did you do with it? Oh, it's it's like in my closet. <laughs> I don't really know what to do with it, to be honest. Like, I don't know, maybe if a friend wants to wear it for Halloween, I'll let them borrow it. <laughs> if they need a Halloween costume. Did they gift it to you or did you ask for it? They gifted it to me. They actually gave one to Michael as well and presented it to us after we shot. The last thing we shot was the last shot. We were in our ripped up tape suits and they presented the flight suits to us, which was really cool. What was it like shooting that final scene of going outside and running on the moon and basically exploding? I don't know how to <laughs> scientific. Yeah, we had a lot of help because of the camera work and special effects. The spacesuits were in three different phases. So when we step out onto the surface of the moon, we're in this like super tight duct tape suit. And thank God it's only at the beginning because we felt like robots in them. And then it actually becomes easier to move and run in them in phase two and three because they have to loosen up the tape a bit to create boils and that, you know, the sun is essentially melting the glue off of the tape because it's 200 degrees on the moon. I thought it would be cold because it's space. (laughs) I know. So did I. Not so. Which was a trip. Yeah. It was a lot of running and making faces of agony and uh, (laughs) pulling each other up and making more faces of agony. And at one point we had to look into the camera. That is very odd because you're so used to not looking into the camera. At the last shot was Tracy and Gordo in each other's arms. And Mm. we talked about that extensively. We shot it different ways. The shot that you ended up seeing was the last pose that we did. Because there was one where we were like completely laying down flat. There's one where our eyes were open. There was one where we're sitting up. And then they would just pick what they felt was most impactful. And I think they nailed it. It worked, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Before we run out of time, I do want to jump over to the path and damnation. I'm just curious. At the end of damnation, we end on a cliffhanger. What do you think happened to Amelia? (laughs) Tony, who created the show... The way he saw it was that we would find season two, Amelia and Connie in Connie's car. And they had had a bit of a reckoning with each other and they might be a little roughed up. Mm. That there would have been this sort of come to Jesus moment between the two of them in terms of understanding the kind of pain that they both experienced with their husband's death. Amelia would have survived and she would have gone on to take on her dad by herself. And then the ending of the path for you. Mm -hmm. It feels like you get a pretty solid wrap up, but the show keeps going and you're still alive. Why don't we see you again? (laughs) I don't know. It was just the direction that the writers chose to go. I loved working on the show. Beautiful show. Yeah. Did that feel weird for you though of like the whole season you're going after one thing and then suddenly it's just done yes it did because it wasn't something that i knew once the second season got picked up they called me and they're like yeah we've decided to go this direction if i had known that she wouldn't be coming back to the second season i think i would have made different decisions and the motivation on what allison does and how she behaves Mm. and but i mean i think it was edited well and serve the story and all of that. But it's always nice, at least for me, to sort of understand what the arc is for the character so that I can navigate 
emotionally where they're going. Yeah. With series, it's not like I need to know the entire thing and it's going to change and evolve. And that's something that I actually like about television and storytelling is that it has room to do that. Again, it's much like life where you don't know what's going to happen. In some cases, the writers don't even know what's going to happen. They might have this outline, but it can shift and change. Yeah. I feel like at the beginning, before you start the season, most of the time the writers give you a vague outline of what they see happening. How often do you get to know the arc of the character before? I have yet to work on something where I was really given like a detailed description of what was going to happen with the character. If you could relive one day on set from For All Mankind, which day would you relive? I don't know. There's a lot of good ones. You could do top five if that's easier. (laughs) I mean, I, I think the first one that came to mind was in the first season where Michael and I get into the big fight about Tracy coming back from training and realizing that this is one big PR stunt. She's being used and and that Gordo was completely willing to embarrass her so that he could go to the moon and not think anything of how she might feel. And Michael and I just had a really fun time shooting it. It was fun to do. What made it so fun? Just because we were both game for the unknown, but we also trusted each other implicitly. So yeah, we just sort of played with it and tried different stuff. And it was really fulfilling in in that kind of way. I loved when we had the desert training day. It was just a nice day and it was nice to hang out with the girls. and, And that was in season one. And then I think like in season two, when Chantel and I are at the bar And we're just sort of sitting and having a conversation. It was also fun in the first season when we went to school and had a word with the principal about our boys. That was fun to play with because we had just finished all of the hospital stuff, which was so intense and just just emotionally taxing that it was nice to just come in because it was right before Christmas and just have at it and play back and forth. But For me, it was just sort of nice in the second season for us to just like kind of just sit and have a conversation with each other. I mean, the scene itself was a lot longer than what it was edited to. But Chantel and I, from day one with working with each other, we just sort of got it. It always feels just very natural between the two of us. The other thing that I really appreciated in the first season, and then I think I'm at five, as I had mentioned earlier, it was really important for me to to show Tracy as a mother, as well as an ambitious career woman. And after Shane's death, I reached out to the writers, which I didn't do often, maybe three times or four. But I said, you know, it's just sort of odd to me that Tracy having been with Karen while Shane was dying and Shane being like, a second son to her as as well as Danny being like a second son to Karen and her about to do this mission, it's harrowing and she doesn't know what that will bring. To not really have a conversation with her son before she leaves, I don't know, that just feels like we're missing something. And fortunately, Ron agreed and I loved what they wrote. That might be my favorite scene in the entire 
series that Tracy was involved in because to me that represented Tracy at the heart of who she is, which is she's going to help people. She's going to do her best. And that has come out of her finally making herself a priority as opposed to putting herself on the back burner and making everyone else a priority. But at the same time, the loves of her life are her children. To me, that scene represented everything that Tracy is, is that she's going to do the mission. She's going to put on her brave face. She's going to do her job. She's going to do it well, but not before she knows that her baby is going to be okay. And that he knows that she loves him more than anything. I, that just sort of, to me, was the representation of Tracy. And I thought that Mason, who played season one's oldest Danny, I was so impressed by how natural he was. I remember like at the end of the scene, like I just said, you know, I love you. And that wasn't in the script. He was right on it. He's like, I love you too, mom. Which, because I think Mason at the time was 11, maybe 12. That's awkward having to sort of respond in that moment. And I was just, I was just really impressed because it never felt forced with him. And for someone at that age, I just, I was just really impressed by him. That was really special to me too. I really felt like he stepped up with getting that scene. My final question, my favorite question to ask, what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? What does it mean to me to have a life in storytelling? I don't know if it necessarily means anything to me. I feel very privileged to be a part of it and that I'm able to financially provide for myself in doing something that truly interests me. And I'm genuinely curious about and think about often, which is what is the human condition? What is reality? How do people tick? How do people work? I'm genuinely interested in, in why people do what they do or what are they feeling or what are they thinking? Or And so to get paid to explore that, it's a privilege. It's a major privilege. And, and it doesn't mean that it's not a lot of work People forget that 90%, especially if you're a working actor and not in the like 1% of people that are just offered stuff, 90% of the work is stuff you're not paid for, which is reading and being told no, creating something and being told no, and just sort of getting back on the horse and, and doing it over again. But I feel very fortunate that there have been times that the people have said yes and that I have been able to financially provide for myself while getting to, to do this stuff. And if someone else that watches it relates to it and maybe gets to sort of take a break from their reality for a second and get caught up in a, a moment, then that's icing on the cake. But at the same time, as the saying goes, it's not like I'm curing cancer here and I'm quite aware of that. I just feel very fortunate and very lucky to be a part of it and to be able to work with the kind of people that I've had the privilege of working with throughout my career. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Coe Media. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Sarah Jones, edited by Joey Salvia. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Renita Malhotra-Hora. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to follow Hollywood Unscripted on your preferred podcast platform so you don't miss any episodes. 
We'll see you next time, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. <laughs>